Welcome to the podcast. I'm Corey. And I'm Brian. And this is the Happy Harvest Horror Show, where we get together and talk about all our favorite things in spooky culture and spooky films. And we got a really fun spooky topic today because we are joined by the authors of the new book, The Science of Serial Killers. We have Kelly Florence and Meg Hofdahl. Welcome, both of you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Very excited you guys are both here. Uh, Meg is also a horror author, correct? Yeah, I write uh, horror fiction as well. So I've got three horror novels out and I have um, three short story collections out. My third is actually coming out this October. So, um, you know, I write the nonfiction with Kelly and do the fiction, you know, and it's it's great. As long as I can inject horror in anything and everything I do. <laughs> I love that. I truly. That's what we do here at Happy Harvest. So this is great. Mm-hmm. Awesome. <laughs> and Kelly uh, and Meg, you both have a also have a podcast, Horror Rewind. I listened to one of the episodes. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. So we talk about, we used to talk about horror movies from our childhood and then see how they uh, lived up to, you know, the lens of, of the current era. But now we're watching everything new horror, old horror, because there's so much content and we love it. That's all, we love it too. Uh, we love anything spooky. Like every week we talk about our favorite spooky things that we you know experienced that week. And so this week's no different. Meg and Kelly, how spooky was your week? We so spooky. My every week of mine is spooky, but I watched, you know, I've been watching uh Tales from the Crypt. Oh, yes. My friend has me up with nice. uh, with some being able to watch those. So that's been really fun. And I watched Midnight Mass, of course. So I was gonna say we both binged Midnight yeah. Mass, the new Mike Flanagan show last weekend and loved it. And then we had a, a, a real spooky encounter. We had a a man in a hoodie deliver a package late at night. I guess it was Amazon, but it was on the ring, and we're like, we're about to be murdered, but we weren't. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> I've just never seen a package delivered that late at night by somebody not in a uniform, but who knows? You know, our mind just naturally goes yeah. there. Especially after this. Most <laughs> for sure. Work, for sure. sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 100%. Corey, how spooky was your week? It's been a week since we've done a recording together. Yeah, it has been a while. Um, and as I think I mentioned on the last time we recorded together, it was right before I moved for this job I have right now. I have no like no internet. I live on top of a mountain and I have like no internet right now. So I can't really watch things. I just downloaded Midnight Mass on my phone so I can watch that now. So I haven't really been able to like watch spooky things, but I'm like... I live in the woods. And so they're like some real life spooky things. Um, I currently work at a very old lodge that is up on a mountain in South Dakota. Um, It was built in the 1930s and it is haunted or so people say. I I haven't directly experienced the like main story. Um, I mean, there it's just, it's just a, it's just a spooky place to be. Like I, uh, I close down the restaurant most nights and it feels very shining esque. Like when Mm -hmm. I'm the last person in the restaurant at night, but the main story 
that people tell about the lodge is that on the third floor, there is a ghost of a little girl who likes to play with a blue ball. And so people will see this like blue ball. Yeah. Bounce across the hall and stuff. And there, and there are people I work with who have been there many years who say they have seen her. So. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And that story. um, Also, we have like campfires every night. So it was like a real, campfire ghost story vibe for sure (laughs) have you seen the blue ball yet i have not i haven't even been up to the third floor honestly i'm a little scared but also we close down at the end of october it's a a seasonal place it closes Mm -hmm. for the winter like the shining um so we close down at the end of october but we will still like the staff will still be there for a couple days to close the lodge down and so i've been like to my friends i'm like we should definitely go ghost hunting like after all the patrons leave you know absolutely yeah so that's that's a plan yeah that that is so cool i'm kind of jelly yeah (laughs) yeah it's it's um it's a cool place to be especially for spooky season so yeah i'll keep y'all posted on uh on any any ghostly encounters i might have but brian how spooky was your week uh, my meek was pretty spooky. It's getting cool here in New York. Finally, you know, uh, I got my Haddonfield Letterman hoodie on, you know, we're ready awesome. to go. I also watched Midnight Mass this last week and was just wrecked by it. Oh, man. Like, you know, we have a we have a two parter episode on our show called uh, Gr- How Growing Up Catholic Makes You Spooky. And so this, you know, we were primed to get just annihilated. Yeah. By show. <laughs> you know, big fan. Yeah. Big fan. Um, we were, uh, we both separately were sobbing and yeah. I came out and tried to explain to my family why, and I won't give any spoilers. I don't know if you're spoiler free, but on the podcast, but let's just say they did not understand. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot. I mean, even just the music of the show, again, not spoiling for, for you, Corey, but just that they, they use a lot of church songs and it like really just mm. touches something like real deep, <laughs> you know, like all these same music <laughs> that we've sing in church with this really emotional horror story. Oh man, I was Correct, but, but yeah, good job, everybody. This is a good spooky week. Um, so we yeah. can <laughs> way to go. Good work. <laughs> good <job. laughs> yeah. Some some weeks we have to really reach, but man, we've got stories bound. So yeah, let's just well, I mean, a- it's it's prime it's prime season. So I feel like at least for the rest of the month, we should have some some richly spooky weeks, probably. <laughs> I hope so. Right? If yeah. we got to be doing it right before we jump into our interview with Kelly and Meg. I just want to take a quick moment to thank our supporters. If you want to support this podcast, you can go to anchor.fm slash HHHS and supporting at any level gets you access to our Happy Harvest Horror Show book club. This month for October, we are reading Stephen Graham Jones's new book, My Heart is a Chainsaw. Kelly and Meg, have you, are you Stephen Graham Jones fans? I'm a Stephen Graham Jones like groupie. I love (laughs) him so much. Um, I haven't started reading that one yet, though. So, um, but he's amazing. And um, Night of the Mannequins and Mongrels and um, uh, Only uh, Only Good Indians. Oh, yeah. Like, holy crap. I just love him so much. Only Good Indians was wild. That was my first introduction to him. And I was like, this is is so new and fresh. This is cool. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's our monthly book. So if you guys want to, awesome. anyone listening wants to join in anchor.fm slash HHHS slash support, just like this great group did. We got Jenny, Julia, Julia, Alessia, Kelsey, Connor, Erica, Jody, Wendy, Morgan, Sarah, Michelle, Mackie, Jennifer, Sarah, Aaron, and Holly. Thank you Woo. all Yay. so much. <laughs> 
It gets longer every time and it gets more fun to go read it as fast as I can. But this is great. Thank you all so much. And yeah, I guess we'll just take a quick moment. And when we get back, we will talk to Kelly and Meg about the science of serial killers. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline and we're back welcome everybody today we are joined by kelly florence and meg hofdahl and we're talking about their new book science of serial killers thanks again for joining us guys this is really cool this is really exciting that you're joining us we always love to meet fellow horror fans it's so fun because we feel like when we were growing up we were the only horror fans that we we i didn't know anybody else and then when we met each other it was like Holy crap. And now we're just, I think it's the power of the internet, you know, and everything. We're just meeting so many and it's wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. It's the making this podcast has been a fun reach out and meeting new people that kind of joined us. And that's, I guess that's my first question is how did this friendship, I guess, collaboration start between you two? Well, um, I guess 20 years ago, 20, over 20, yeah, 21 years ago, I was working in a, in a gift shop and Kelly walked in and she had an X-Files shirt on. And I was like, oh, my God. So we exchanged uh, phone numbers and email addresses, as you did in the day, without social media. And the rest is history. She came over like a week later. We had a X-Files marathon sleepover and found out we're both uh, huge horror fans as well. Uh, started the podcast a few years ago. And then we were already talking about the stuff. We're like, we should be writing about this. And that's when we started writing our The Science of Horror series. I love that. And I love that this, basically, this is your fourth book of the science of horror. You've had, you know, science of uh, monsters. Is that right? The science of women in horror and then science of Stephen King last year. And now science of serial killers. What I really like about this series and what I've read about it is how you kind of really find these uh, while describing the, the, the lore and the story behind, you know, the source material, you interject all these facts in history and actual, like find the kernels of truth in there. Was that always kind of growing up that your uh, interest in horror films is finding out what was based in reality and that kind of made its way into the story? Yeah. I, for me, like um, when I was about eight, I found out who Lizzie Borden was. And up until then I, I was used to watching like slasher movies and um it was like, I didn't even know a girl could be a murderer. Like I, that, that concept had never like, <laughs> you know, gone through my mind. And I was like, Whoa, like, wait a minute. The woman could be holding the ax in this situation. And I mean, that sounds very macabre and like, maybe not the best role model for an eight year old, but for me, it was kind of empowering. And so finding those truths behind the films that I was watching, both of us are like nerds and we like to do research and we, we love history and philosophy and psychology and all those things. So it's just kind of a natural fit. Yeah. And also, I mean, Meg was watching slashers before she was eight and found out about Lizzie Borden. (laughs) Same with me. The 
first VHS I owned, uh, my dad got it me for Christmas. It was Night of the Living Dead. And so I was like, why aren't zombies real? Like, I need to make this real. <laughs> I, like, I, I don't know why I wanted that to be real. But, you know, and Frankenstein's monster, like, I had to learn more about the truth behind it because I loved it so much. And so, yeah, it just felt like this natural progression. And then also science is, it's so broad. There's so many things. There's psychology, there's social science, there's, you know, medical things, there's scientific things. It's all just fascinating. And truth is scarier than fiction. Yeah, seriously. (laughs) 100%. That actually kind of leads to a, a big a big topic that that Brian and I have kind of touched on and we definitely wanted to talk to y'all about um in writing this book the science of serial killers to what extent do you see serial killers the true crime craze as a form of horror or do you see them as like separate uh for me i i see them separate in a way. Um, it's interesting because, you know, with this book, we're definitely, um, meeting new people who aren't necessarily interested in horror films, but they're interested in true crime. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's, you know, there is that split you see. 100%. Um, my, my mom is a great example. You know, my mom absolutely will devour anything about, you know, a serial killer or murderer, but she would never watch like, you know, a Jordan Peele movie. Like, so Mm -hmm. she's that type of person. And, um, I think like for Kelly and I approaching uh, this book, because we approach everything through the lens of film or like for a Stephen King book through a lens of the book. Um, we wanted to make sure that we separate horror the as like the um entertainment of horror and then the serious nature of true crime and and the other thing is too we definitely don't celebrate or lift up on any pedestal any serial killer because they're they're not um smart they're not geniuses and uh, we focus very victim focused and then looking at at them through a different lens yeah that actually that was another question i i saw something and it wasn't, it was definitely on social media or something. So not like a great re, um, like resource, but I saw something about how, and maybe you found this in researching your book, that with a lot of these serial killers in like the 70s and 80s, there was almost this push to make them seem a lot smarter than they were so that like the cops didn't look incompetent. <laughs> like like it yeah. was like they were having such a hard time solving it. So they created a narrative or a narrative was created that these these people were actually like masterminds when really they weren't that much of, you know, they weren't the geniuses they were being portrayed to be. We were just doing a, a presentation um, earlier today and um, someone was asking about the Green River Killer. Um, his name is Gary Ridgway. And that's a great example of a complete and utter dunce. <laughs> but, you know, he can barely string a sentence together, right? Like he's not smart at all. But he went on killing for decades. He's He's one of the most prolific serial killers of our time. Um, And then that's when Kelly and I can really start discussing this concept of the less dead, which is this concept that um, when serial killers go after sex workers, when they go after marginalized voices, um, they're getting away with 30, 40, 50 murders because that 
you know, is not being pursued with the the fervor of if it's a pretty white girl. Mm-hmm. So it all is kind of this cycle. It's like you want to make the serial killer seem really smart and you want to make it seem like, you know, you're you're trying just as hard to to catch you know, somebody who kills college co-eds and somebody who kills sex workers. But the truth is there, there is a class system. And, um, and I think nowadays people are really becoming a lot smarter and, and keen to what's going on. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. There was a, our, a couple episodes ago, we had a, uh, a chat with uh, the author of terror of motherhood. And, and she was talking about, uh, we were talking at a brief conversation of no man of God, the most recent Ted Bundy movie. Um, and we were comparing that to the extremely wicked, shockingly evil and vile movie and how both of these movies really portrayed Ted Bundy and really only showed the really like super smart or assumed super smart, very um, attractive and alluring and like really kind of almost erases what he did, you know, and like s- spent most of the movie focusing on just this part and like the fascination by him. And um, I appreciate how responsibly you guys were approaching it because it really just feels it feels gross and i thought that but watching both of those movies like yeah i feel like this is a part of it and i think is erasing what he did you know i don't know what the question i'm really getting at is i, I think it's just an icky feeling about that and i think mm-hmm. with many other serial killers and i'm wondering if anything surprised you in this book about public perception well, versus reality the romanticization of like a lot of these killers yeah. and how that comes into play yeah, something I was was just thinking about and talking about is that re- doing the research for this book and writing it was the hardest one so far because it's based on real victims and real people. And there were a lot of days where I had to step away because there were a lot of like uh, you know people who were writing love letters to these guys in prison mm-hmm. or still are for the ones who are still alive, but you know in reality it's this is horrific. And if you if you're looking at the real act, it's I mean, that's true horror. So what we did to, we're not listing graphic gross things that they did in, in our book. We, we uh, obviously touch on it, but we're shifting gaze and looking at through the lens of, okay, what made them do this? If there's a, like a scientific reason, Meg has a, an interesting chapter on that, or, you know, what were their home experiences like? Uh, how, how did technology change to help solve these crimes? And so as we saw throughout the decades, I mean, technology is so good now, like DNA evidence and um, fingerprinting and everything, you know, going back to uh, Jack the Ripper till now, maybe we could have solved some of those things with technology. Mm-hmm. And so we talk about that and the science of it. Yeah, we try nice. to, you know, for instance, like we do a chapter on Jack the Ripper. And one thing I found interesting was just the history of Whitechapel and what the living conditions were. Um, you know, and, you know, the, the Jewish and Irish immigrants that were living there and how different it was from, you know, sort of our Charles Dickens view of what England was like then. Um, so there's a lot to research and a lot to talk about that's not romanticizing or putting these men. Um, we talk about women too, but I think unfortunately the men get sort of, um, put on a, a special pedestal. Um, and we just, we, we, before we wrote the book, we sat down, we're like, how are we going to do this without making it seem like we want to start a, I love Ted Bundy group. Cause we don't, that's not what we're here <laughs> for. You know, that's, that is not what we want to support and talk about. So I think, I think we accomplished, um, uh, what we were, what we set out to do, but we definitely wanted to come at it from a, you know, 
modern angle. And I've, I've said this before, uh, but it was tempting every, uh, every chapter I wanted to end with. And in conclusion, this guy was an a-hole, but I didn't, (laughs) I I wanted to every time. For sure. Um, that, so I wanted to bring up, I, I don't know if, if you're familiar or if this was like incorporated into your research, but are you familiar at all with like the work of Dr. Dorothy Otnow Lewis? So there's this HBO documentary that came out last year called Crazy Not Insane. And she basically, all of her research and all of her work in like the 80s and 90s was very in line with this. It was like trying to understand the why. It was trying to understand the why of all these high profile serial killers. And it's a really great documentary. I very much, very much recommend it. But even on just the trailer, there's this really good poll quote from her that's like, I think any one of us, myself included, could kill. And she like, and so, so she comes at understanding, I think, these killers from a place of deep understanding and empathy, but not romanticization at all you know there's there's always this like um it's just like from this place of really just wanting to understand how people end up doing these things and the general thesis of the entire documentary and most of her work is that in the vast majority of cases serial killers or people who just do horrendous things to people had experienced basically extreme abuse in their childhood. And I was just wondering if that was anything like in terms of the psychology of serial killers, if that was anything you get into or anything you found in your research, kind of the connection between early childhood trauma and people who do bad things, basically. Yeah, absolutely. That kept coming up over and over in the research. And in particular, off the top of my head, um, the Night Stalker, Richard Ramirez, his childhood, you know, we talk about made killers versus um, born killers. And there's an argument that he was a made killer because of his circumstances, because of the people he was surrounded with, and then some head trauma. And that does not excuse what he did, but it explains it. And Mm -hmm. I think uh, explaining too, Meg uh, has a really interesting chapter in one of our other books about women killers versus men and their reasons. Right. The the sort of why women end up being serial killers versus men and and that women come at it from a much more um, practical financial sort of a or survival survival sort of reasoning um not always i mean but this is the majority and while men come from that sort of power um which therein lies the sex aspect of it um but yeah i mean you know there's it is hard to, you know you don't want to empathize too much with the serial killer obviously but when you're reading about their childhood i do empathize with them as children very often you know when you're reading that part you're like wow like you know, that's awful. Um, but then there's Jeffrey Dahmer who was not, no one abused him and he had a very like normal childhood. Um, so there's that there's, it's, you know, yeah, the majority that is what's happening, but then there's, you know, those ones where you can't quite pin down what happened. Mm-hmm. I'm curious because we were just talking about, we were on the topic of romanticization and, and you in your past books, you always tie it from, you know, fiction to the kernels of truth. And in this one, it's like, it, if I, I forgive me if I'm wrong, but it looks like you're doing it the opposite. You're looking at the, the, the truth and kind of connecting it to film um, in some ways. Um, and so I'm thinking about the romanticization, especially of like on-screen slashers. And I say this as I'm wearing a Haddonfield hoodie, but <laughs> I, I, do you find any sort of obviously slashers, 
uh, on screen are fictional and, you know, uh, fans of Ted Bundy are uh, real. Is there any sort of connection in the how our brains, you know, idolize one or the other? Well, I mean, I think that this idea of, you know, and I like, for instance, I just bought this cute little yarn, um, cro- no, crochet candy man. And he's so cute. And I like to cuddle with him. He's got his little hook, you know, (laughs) this idea that like, you know, we can kind of um, make these, those kinds of killers that are fake. We can kind of, you know, enjoy them from that cinematic aspect. Um, But, you know, it is harder. Like um, once you kind of read about the Gainesville killer um, or Gainesville Ripper rather, um, who Kevin Williamson based um, the ghost face ghost face from scream. It's like, once you do read that, you know, when you watch scream, it does kind of color uh, a little bit of your experience. Mm-hmm. So, you know, having that truth, it, it's not necessarily a bad thing though. It, it kind of maybe makes you appreciate all the, the, the poor victims and these slashers who sometimes were just like, come on, get to the next death. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, for one, think that you can enjoy horror and you can enjoy slashers and you can, I, I love gore. Um, but that doesn't, but, but I think as an adult, I can see the difference of movie making and real. I don't know. Yeah, no, I agree. And, and I, I think as kids too, we could, yeah, yeah, we could make that differentiation. I know not every, maybe not everybody can, but getting back to what you're talking about, I think it's so fascinating because we have found this. There are so many true crime fans who will never watch a horror movie. And mm-hmm. I, I, I don't understand that because I, I can do both. So I yeah. don't know. And it's funny because I've said on the podcast that I think I'm the opposite. True crime really upsets me. You know, that like really scares me on a deep level, but I could, I could watch And I do watch, you know, all the slashers that are out there. So it's, it's fascinating. It's just how maybe just the, I don't know. I, I wonder that too, how, why I our think- brains. Yeah, go ahead. I think it maybe has something to do with how everyone kind of has their own like relationship to suspension of disbelief. Because yeah. I think for some people, like in watching a cinematic horror film, the sus- suspension of disbelief is very easy. You know, like like we can kind of just like understand that it is it, it this is a movie. It's entirely fake. But I think for some other people, seeing all that very intense like gore and stuff is really alarming. Whereas if they're watching just a true crime show, obviously true crime shows might be telling a story, but they're not showing they're not showing brutal murders, brute like brutal gory murders most of the time. They're just telling you what happened. Um, so I think it has to do with just like those kinds of sensibilities a lot of the time, like whether or not you're able to understand the distance between cinema and reality, I think has a lot to do with whether or not someone can handle horror. But I also totally agree. Like I'm not, I have some interest in true crime, but I definitely, I like, I I just dip my toe in sometimes. Like it's, it it can really deeply upset me as well (laughs) in a way that like spooky stuff. I just, I just enjoy, I just thoroughly enjoy it, you know? But yeah, the, the true crime craze, I, I don't know. That's something I'm just like, fascinated by like how how much it has taken off and how much people just really love taking in all of this like true crime content all the time because I've heard things with the true crime craze and how it is also like a largely like the fan base of true crime is largely women 
I've heard from women that really love true crime that it is kind of a way of like working through their own fears about just violence being being enacted on them. I guess I wonder just like from a, you know, a feminist and horror fan perspective, what you think about that. Yeah, we interviewed um, Mary Kay McBrayer, the author of America's First Serial Killer, female serial killer, um, about Jane Toppin. And she addressed this issue specifically. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's this notion of why are women drawn to learning about this? And I think it has to do with that we are like, we are in sort of a victimhood from the time that we're little. I grew up with a very... um, uh, paranoid mother who would just assume that there was a serial killer at every, you know, <laughs> bus stop. And, and so, you know, my, but she allowed my older brother to like take off on his bike. And so I'm, a, I'm a small girl. I'm, I'm, you know, five feet tall. My mom was like, you know, the boogeyman's out there. He's going to get you. He's going to get you as always. Cause I grew up in that sort of like post serial killer, like, you know, Ted Bundy was caught by then, but mm-hmm. you know, everything had kind of exploded at that point. And my mom loved it all. I mean, she was reading every annual book and all that stuff, but at the same time, it was like, she kind of kept me, you know, in a bubble because she was mm-hmm. just convinced that I was going to be kidnapped by a serial killer. And so I kind of grew up feeling like that sort of like I was already a victim, even though nothing had happened to me yet sort of thing. And I think a lot of women are in that situation and boys aren't necessarily treated the same way um, when they're growing up. I don't know that that might be a generalization, but for me, I think I'm attracted to true crime because I think it's just naturally a a human thing um, because it's aberrant and it's interesting. But I think also Mm -hmm. there's this idea of knowing the boogeyman and sort of like, for me, not having him on that pedestal and tearing him down and and just showing what a complete imp he is, that makes me feel better. Um, and, And, you know, seeing women, there's a lot of great stories about women who have survived and um and even the women who didn't the the women who fought like hell and i think there's something in their stories that we can really take a lot from so you know it is hard to sort of like square up i consider myself a feminist obviously and how do you square up liking true crime which is inherently anti-female in so many ways um how do you square up those two things? And I think that's just something that we are learning to do in a society. And I know the generation younger than us is like so much better at like processing and talking about. Yeah, definitely. I I think I definitely agree too with, I mean, obviously, yeah, the appeal, like one of the appeals of true crime and, and things of that nature is it just being yeah aberrant, something kind of on the outside, something that doesn't, seem acceptable to like normal society and that makes it fascinating and interesting and appealing but I also I really like what you said about like facing the boogeyman because I also think in looking at these people who do horrible things it gives us a chance to honestly rehumanize them which I think is important because it's important for us to realize that it's humans doing terrible things, you know, like, cause that's like, I think we really, with these stories of like true crime and just like 
like we like to turn people into monsters. And when you turn them into monsters, they're different from you. But when you like really face it and realize like, no, that's also just a human being, then I think that's when we can actually maybe prevent things from happening in the future when we can actually, you know, but when we just like toss people aside as monsters, that doesn't stop us from creating more monsters, you know, but like in under it going back, I guess going back to that quote, I said, like, you know, understanding the humanity of someone who does something horrible helps you realize like all people can snap. And that's from that place, we can understand how we can prevent these people from being created, I guess, if that makes sense. Oh yeah. It makes so much sense because if you are acting like, you know, Danny Rowling, the the Gainesville Ripper, if you're acting like he is as epic as Ghostface, then yeah, you're distancing yourself. But if you mm-hmm. realize he's just a loser, <laughs> these things, you know, and that and that maybe if someone had I- intervened in school with him or someone had intervened through his church or whatever, you know, um, and we need to learn sort of these signs. And, you know, I think as, as mass um, killings have gone up, people are starting to go, okay, what are the signs, you know, how do we make sure that these kids aren't falling through the cracks, so to speak? And, and I think, yeah, it's exactly, you have to remember these are humans and they're not epic. They're not cool. They're not Candyman, And, um, they're just, they're, they're people who need help. In your research for this book, because I, you know, there's, there's shows like Mindhunter and, and whatnot that do, you know, try to create this profile of what to look for and tendencies. And, and you bring up a bit of that in, in some of the, the, the facts that you bring up in Stephen King's, the science of Stephen King book um, about early signs. I'm curious if, if in your research, if you learned what that treatment looks like at a young age, if they catch it, what sort of, what sort of therapy would be called for? I, I just, I feel like that's never covered in these fictional things, you know? Yeah, definitely. And I remember all the way back to our first chapter in our first book, The Science of Monsters, we talk about Michael Myers, you know, and he's a, a killer from the age of, of five or, or whenever. And the things to look out for, I mean, I think he was described as uh, based on a, on a real person that John Carpenter came across as just soulless. And he looked into his eyes and there was nothing there. Like there was going to be no reaching him. And I think we've seen that in the subsequent um, sequels, but typically those things like um, the cruelty to animals, the bedwetting for some reason, setting fires, those are early signs. And then really there should be this, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, medication, all of that. But then you get to what if there's no helping some people? I mean, they're, they're, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, uh, we had a fun interview and this is in our first book too. I asked a psychiatrist, um, what he would do about Norman Bates. If Norman Bates came into his office, like what, what, how would you, how would you help this poor guy? (laughs) Um, and so that was kind of fun to kind of, you know, say now how would modern medicine deal with somebody like, you know, Ed Gein? Uh, so yeah, I mean, we, we try to explore these things. We try to, I don't know if in science books, how many, you know, you, you feel like as many questions as you answer, there are like a thousand more questions you don't answer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you know, certainly I think I serial, serial killing has gone down 85% in the last three decades. So that's the good news. Um, it's just not, um, something that is happening as regularly as, you know, we think, 
Or, and there's, oh, sorry, there could be a couple of reasons for it too. We yeah. in the book. I mean, first of all, technology is getting better. So people are getting caught. So maybe they, people who maybe could have gotten away with it aren't. Yeah. But there's another interesting study. Well, yeah. And I mean, obviously there's a whole, you know, I, th- I think as a whole society is better and we're learning not to abuse our children, maybe at quite, you know, as we once did and, and things like that. Um, but there's also a really cool study about lead. Uh, that I got into, uh, which is really neat. If you go down the rabbit hole, uh, basically explaining that, you know, uh, we used our, our use of lead from the 40s to the 70s doubled. And kids growing up at that time um, absorbed more lead than anybody in the United States at the time. Now, most of them are not serial killers. So I'm not saying that having lead in your system makes you serial killer. But it's an interesting thing because there is a correlation between lead and violent crime in different countries and when they stopped using lead and the gas and, and how much was in the environment. And it's kind of a cool thing um, to think about that maybe these kids who already had a host of problems, maybe there was an environmental reason that we didn't even know uh, that was inside their brain causing them to, you know, go even more crazy, so to speak, um, uh, you know, you never know what's going on in, the, in that environment. So that was kind of a fun rabbit hole to go down. Yeah, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, I mean, largely in that HBO documentary, what it was kind of coming to is that it's it's typically it's just a, a lethal combination of probably early childhood abuse and then some kind of brain issue. And so like lead poisoning would like obviously explain your brain not fully developing correctly you add on like certain abuse like your brain probably just doesn't develop the emotional intelligence it needs to not kill someone you know like like, i i teach communication and we talk about the importance and power of tactile communication and there's studies about children who weren't held weren't hugged weren't uh, didn't have any sort of positive touch and how they literally are physiologically emotionally different and emotional intelligence wise. Mm-hmm. And they'll, that's, that part is forever missing. And so it definitely, it goes back to what, yeah, what's missing or what's, what's there. Yeah, absolutely. It's fascinating to think about the environmental, how that factors into it, thinking about lead in, in serial killers. It makes me think of in the Salem witch trials, the theory that there might've been mushrooms, you know, that were causing hallucinogenic effects. Were there anything else? I I mean, any findings in your research for this book or the other ones that really surprised you that hadn't really considered before? You know, something I find kind of fascinating is that women just, there's not really a sexual component uh, to female serial killers, but, um, one of my most, I don't know, fascinating topics is Jane Toppin. And she admitted to having a sexual thrill um, when she killed people. And I thought that was kind of fascinating and interesting because she's really the only woman. I think um, I can think of one other, um, but her name escapes me, um, who, you know, mentioned that. But it's so kind of fascinating to me, the difference between, you know, male and female serial killers. It it just, the physiology again, and, and like the brain and what's going on in there and why women kill. And it, it just, it's, it, it's so in, in a society where it feels like those, um, male and female boundaries are, are getting, you know, um, 
so much fuzzier, which is awesome. Um, it's fascinating to see how that plays out in science. And, um, and the fact that, I mean, I'm just glad that we're, we have so few or less serial killers now, right? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> of course. I wonder too, just like you saying that, like the sexual component of things, I wonder if also just with female serial killers, like just because like female sexuality, it can be such a deeply repressed thing if they were experiencing that, but they just didn't want to talk about it, you know, like didn't didn't want to admit it, you know, Um, because that there's a whole taboo with that as well. You know, Mm -hmm. it's not, it would definitely not be as easy. I think for a woman to feel like she could talk about that. And Mm -hmm. most of the male serial killers, they love to hear themselves talk. So I'll just go. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Totally. Like the whole crux of Mindhunter, right. Is they just, yeah, really. Well, I'm I'm very excited to read this book. The what is the release date? We have October, October nineteenth, nineteenth. But it can anyone can pre-order it now too. So, yeah. awesome. awesome. And, and uh, we'll be in uh, we'll be doing book signings uh, throughout Minnesota, but we'll also be at Dark Delicacies in LA um, October fifteenth. Is that the right date? I think so. Yeah, I better double check. Yeah, <laughs> October sixteenth. Oh, thank Saturday. you. Yeah. I had your website. I got you. Dark Delicacies is awesome. I love that bookstore. So we've never been. So we're very excited to go and sign books and also shop. (laughs) Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That whole strip. You got Magnolia. It's great. It's great. Awesome. Well, Corey, any other questions for uh, the science of serial killers? I mean, it's a deeply fascinating topic. I could go on for a very long time, but <laughs> but I don't I don't want to to uh, monopolize your time or make you give away everything in your book because we Absolutely, want everyone yeah. to go buy your book. So yeah, thank you so much for being here. Wonderful conversation. Very excited to read the book. Thank, thank you so you. much for having us. Yeah, this is great. We'll we'll come chat anytime. Please yeah. do, please do. For the next book, please, please, please come back. <laughs> and the next book is The Science of Witchcraft coming out next October. <gasps> no <so>. way. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> we both went. <gasps> <laughs> oh, wow. Okay, yes, yes, definitely come back and for that And that, one. too, has been fascinating. We, You never know what route you're going to go down. We talked about, we talked to an indigenous botanist about healing plants. And, you know, because there's so much, <laughs> so many potions and things and in which movies and now we're like bringing the science into it. It's so fascinating. Yeah, that's definitely, definitely my jam. So (laughs) please come back. I would love to discuss that for sure. Absolutely. Well, thank you both again for joining us. Uh, I wish you luck with the book. I can't wait to read it and we'll catch you all next time. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks.